Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking... But I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes. Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Hello, and welcome to Instant Genius, a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Alice Lipscomb-Southwell, Managing Editor at BBC Science Focus magazine. In this episode, I talk to Professor Dave Goulson, an entomologist at the University of Sussex. He's the author of the new book, Silent Earth, Averting the Insect Apocalypse. He tells me everything I need to know about why insects are declining and how we can stop it. Hi Dave, so just to start, please could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, so my name's Dave Goulson. I'm a professor of biology at the University of Sussex. And I've been sort of obsessed by insects all my life, I suppose, since I was five or six years old. I've no idea why, but I've been lucky enough to make a career out of it. And I spent the last nearly 30 years specialising on bumblebees, which are my kind of specialist subject. But I, I, I dabble in other insects too. Now, why are insects important? What roles in the ecosystem do they play? So many, it's hard to know where to start. Um, I mean, insects are, so they make up the bulk of life on Earth in terms of biodiversity. More than two thirds of all species that we've identified are are insects. And there are probably a lot more that we haven't identified. Uh, They're food for an awful lot of the other organisms. So, for example, birds, most birds eat insects, as do bats, lots of small mammals, lizards, freshwater fish like trout and salmon, they all depend on insects. So if the insects weren't there, they, they wouldn't be there. Um, but then they do a whole bunch of other important stuff. Scientists call it ecosystem services, which is a bit of a, a bit of an unhelpful phrase, I sometimes think. But anyway, things like recycling. So, so um, uh, maggots help to get rid of dead bodies and dung beetles help to get rid of cow pats and they help to break down dead trees and leaves and all sorts of other things. And so they're really important in nutrient cycles. They keep the soil healthy. They move seeds around. They do all sorts of stuff. Um, I mean, I I guess the thing that most people recognize is they pollinate. Um, So roughly uh, 87% of all the plant species on the planet need pollinating by some kind of animal. And 
occasionally in the tropics that's a, that animal is a hummingbird or a bat but 99% of the time it's some kind of insect so the majority of the world's plants would would disappear without insects including three quarters of the the crops we grow would be affected without you know they depend upon insect pollination so essentially life on earth would would grind to a halt if we didn't have insects and your new book that's just come out is called Silent Earth, and that's all about the insect apocalypse and how many insects are dying out. So why exactly are they dying out? So the drivers are many. Um, uh, it's, you know, there's no single cause of insect declines. Probably the biggest one has been loss of, of insect-rich habitats. Um, in the UK, things like our ancient woodlands and heathlands and our fens and marshes, our flower-rich meadows, uh, most of them have been swept away. Uh, and obviously, that this is not something confined to the UK. In the tropics, we've got deforestation and so on. Essentially, we're replacing natural biodiverse habitats with, with either cities or monocultures of crops, and that's had a huge impact. And actually associated with that is probably the second biggest driver of insect declines, which is the, the rise of pesticides and the many different pesticides we use in farming, but also in gardens and, and in our streets and, and, in fact, almost everywhere these days. But then there's a whole bunch of other things impacting um, invasive species, climate change, light pollution effects, nocturnal moths. Uh, and so on and so on. So it's it's almost like a sort of perfect storm. You know, insects might cope with one or two things, but they can't cope with this whole kind of blizzard of different um, adverse pressures on their populations. How do we know insects are dying out? Do you do surveys and see how many there are? It's it's actually pretty difficult to measure insect populations in, in a consistent way because there are so many of them, so many different ones. So actually, the data we have are really patchy. The majority of insects we have no data for um, in terms of numbers of species. But there are some long-term studies of particular insect groups or in particular places using all sorts of different methods. And the ones we have, the data we have, all kind of point in the same direction. They all, sadly, almost all, uh, show patterns of decline. So just to give you a few examples, in the UK, we have a really good butterfly monitoring scheme, uh, which has been going since the late 1970s, uh, which is based on, on volunteers walking the same walk every fortnight through the spring and summer and counting and identifying all the butterflies they see. And that shows that uh, British butterflies have fallen roughly by, uh, on average, by about 50% since 1976. There was a big study from Germany using kind of insect traps that catch flying insects that uh, found a much bigger decline. There, they they recorded a seventy six percent drop in the the the, the weight of insects uh, <laughs> over a twenty six year period. One estimate from the Netherlands suggests that butterflies there have declined by eighty four percent since the beginning of the twentieth century. So these declines have probably been going on for a long time. Um, and just one other line of evidence while I'm at it, um, we've noticed that the insect-eating birds in particular have declined more than other birds. So, for example, cuckoos are down by more than 70% since the, since the late 60s. Spotted flycatcher, which is a lovely little, little bird that I remember being common when I was a kid, 
um, its populations have fallen by 93% in the UK. And it's, it's a specialist on feeding on flying insects, as you might imagine from the name flycatcher. And there's just not many flies for it to catch these days, sadly. I mean, they're big declines as well, aren't they? I mean, any decline is bad, but it's not five or 10% we're talking about, you know, like 70, 80, 90%. That's just extortionate. That's huge. Yeah, it, it's really terrifying, especially given that it's it's probably not the whole picture. You know, these declines have probably been going on for 100 years. And we're most of the data we have just relates to the last 30, 40 years. So exactly how many insects we've lost, we don't really know, but it's it's probably a big proportion. I mean, as you speak about it in the book, and I've considered it myself as well, that I remember when I was young and you go out for a car drive and there'd be bug splats all over the windscreen. And just these days, I mean, admittedly, I live in a city now, but even when you go out in the countryside, you just don't get those bug splats anymore. No, it's interesting. I've heard this from uh, so many people. And it's the only aspect of insect declines that is really, I think, kind of impinged on the you know the public kind of consciousness you know people don't pay much attention to insects they they mostly don't like them you know if something comes near them their first reaction is usually to swat it so most people aren't kind of regularly looking at insects but they of course this this phenomenon of having to stop to clean your windscreen which which i can remember from when i was younger and i think almost everybody uh, that's old enough can remember Exactly when it ended is a bit woolly and, you know, I'm not entirely sure. But it's certainly true that, you know, there was a time a few decades ago where, where you know, not just the windscreen, but the, the um, you know, the headlights would get covered, the whole grill, the whole front of the car was, unfortunately, this massive dried, splattered insect guts. And it just doesn't happen at all anymore. There is an interesting theory that it might be related to the aerodynamics of cars, um, because obviously cars are more streamlined than they used to be. And that seemed to be quite a plausible, or at least partial explanation. So Kent Wildlife Trust did a study where they recruited volunteers uh, with different aged cars to record the number of splats on them. And actually, they found that even people driving around in in classic cars that are much less aerodynamic they don't have any splats on their windscreens either. So it, it, that isn't the explanation, it turns out, sadly. Oh, that's a shame. I was hopeful then, thinking, oh, maybe it's just out of the cars. But yeah, if it is genuinely the decline. So are we seeing these declines all over the world or is it just concentrated in certain areas or countries? That's a really good question. because, And actually, the, the, the answer is the data we have, the long-term insect studies are really biased towards Europe and North America, where there are lots of scientists like me that are interested in insects. Uh, we have almost no data from say, Africa and South America and most of Southeast Asia which is really worrying because that's where most insect, well, not just insect, where most biodiversity lives. There were one or two studies from the tropics which show insect declines and pretty big ones. But we, for, for most in, tropical insects, we haven't really got any data. I'd be pretty confident that they're declining there too, because of course we're seeing you know massive habitat loss and and climate change and all these other environmental issues affecting those countries as much or more than 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 places like Britain. But the honest truth is, you know, we're really short on good studies from from uh, the tropics. Um, so what will happen if we lose our insects? What will the future look like? Well, it, life will be tough. You know, I mean, the, the most obvious um, thing is is pollination. You know, most of the fruits and veg we eat, they depend upon insects to give a good harvest. 
And so, you know, if we lose pollinators, then then it's going to be re- really difficult to provide a healthy diet to to the growing human population. But it isn't just pollination. Um, you know, that I, I mentioned earlier that insects help to keep the soil healthy, and we have major problems with soil degradation around the world. You know, soil health depends upon all the little creatures that that live in it, and we need healthy soils to grow crops. And we also need insects to recycle. Um, you know. Um, things like um, cow dung. Um, it's absolutely vital that, that that gets all the nutrients in it get recycled. And there's, there's actually a really interesting example of the importance of that. So when we colonized Australia and we took cattle to Australia, there were no dung beetles in Australia that can cope with cow dung. It's too wet. They're used to marsupial dung, which is really dry. And the poor Australian dung beetles drowned if they tried to do anything with cow pads. So the cow pads weren't being removed and the la- they were just drying as like little sort of hard plates on the la- all over the landscape. And eventually the entire landscape was covered in a layer of cow pads and the grass couldn't go th- grow through. And at one stage, there were 50,000 square kilometres of Australia covered under dry cow pads. And so they, they introduced dung beetles able to cope with cow dung. And it was, it was one example of a very successful introduction. Some have gone badly wrong. But uh, the, the introduced dung beetles ate all the dung, and now the cows are thriving, the grass is doing well, the nutrients are being recycled, uh, everyone is happy. Well, almost. Uh, so it just shows that, you know, we, 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 don't, we take it for granted that the insects are there and they're doing these, these things. And if they're not there, um, then that's when we notice the problems. I think it's an interesting case study because you hear a lot, don't you, about introduced insects um, or other animals and how they cause just huge problems. And then the plucky dung beetle there, he's done a good job. So that's, that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there have been some disasters where, you know, I mean, I, any number of them one could mention. I, many of them in Australia, actually. I mean, things like rabbits and cane toads and so on. We have Asian hornets invading Europe at the moment, which is a real problem because they love to eat honeybees sadly um, but just occasionally we get it right and uh, and and an introduction has proved to be very useful uh, speaking of introductions because you say about honeybees and am i correct in thinking that honeybees were originally from europe but they've been shipped all over the world to help with pollination so are they then causing problems in those new areas maybe out competing uh, native bees yeah, they are uh, to some extent. I mean, so the honeybee is native to, to Europe and Africa. Uh, there are other species of honeybees that are found in Asia, but the, the one that's been domesticated and that it, and we have taken is Apis mellifera is the the scientific name of the sort of European honeybee. They're now probably the most widespread insect on the planet. We've taken them to literally every country. Um, Antarctica is the only place where there aren't any honeybees, and. It has created problems. I mean, there are really two issues. One is is that they, if if there are lots of honeybee hives in an area, they take most of the pollen and nectar from the flowers, um, and that means that that native pollinating insects don't have much food left, which is obviously particularly a problem in areas which have been depleted of many of their flowers by other things that we've done. And then there's a second, less well known problem, which is that we've accidentally spread lots of um, honeybee diseases and parasites around the world, and many of them will happily also infect uh, wild insects like bumblebees. Uh, so, for example, 
There's a kind of Asian bee diarrhea uh, called Nasima serrani, a gut parasite of bees, which has accidentally come with honeybees to Europe and is now quite common in wild bumblebees in, in the UK. And it often kills them. But that, you know, came with honeybees, sadly. So, yeah, we ought to be more careful um, where we put honeybees and how much we ship them around because it has created a lot of problems. Is there an insect that is most under threat? Uh, I mean, there are lots that are that are acutely endangered. Um, maybe just if I just had to pick one, there's these amazing things called weta, which are giant crickets that live in New Zealand, and they they basically fill the role of small rodents that was because there weren't any naturally in in New Zealand. So they they behave like kind of mice or voles, and they're great big heavy insects, amongst the biggest insects in the world. Um, but they, they're easy prey for rats and introduced predators in New Zealand. And they only survive on one or two little islands off the coast. So that's one example of, a, of an acutely endangered insect. But, um, of course, you know, there are many more. Oh, I did meet a wetter when I went to New Zealand a couple of years ago. There's this great place in Wellington called Zealandia, where they're trying to bring back all these native species and get it back to how it would have been before humans arrived at New Zealand. And yeah, they've got Chiotara there, they've got wetter, they've got all these amazing birds. And they're so cool. They're massive, these wetter. They're really awesome. Yeah, they're very amazing. They're like kind of little insect tanks, aren't they? Extraordinary things. Very cute. So if there are a lot of insects under threat, then... Should we be eating them? Because there's discussions at the moment saying how great it is for our health. You know, they're considered perhaps a more ethical way to eat. Um, they're really high protein. You can keep them in. Um, they don't take up as much space as cows or sheep or whatever. So if we ate them, might that help? Well, uh, yeah. So I guess that we need to distinguish between breeding insects, cultivating insects to eat and catching them in the wild, you know, that because the wild insects are declining, it's probably not a good idea that we start, you know, catching insects from, from the environment and eating them. But the idea of farming insects to eat is, is, seems to have merit. Of course, it's, you know, in, in the Western world, it's kind of not part of our culture to eat insects. And most people are quite squeamish about the idea that it really fancy snacking on a plate full of cockroaches or whatever but you're right you know that they are very efficient at converting plant material into into nutritious animal protein that we can digest easily and they can eat some insects can eat material that would be completely useless as a as a human food uh, so you know cultivating mealworms or crickets or whatever um, has advantages you know it's it's, it's it, it as you say it takes up much less space than keeping cows or even chickens um, they use much less water. And so, you know, perhaps we should be considering this as 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 one kind of option in the mix of, you know, obviously there are huge, one of the, I mean, arguably amongst the biggest challenges facing people is how do we feed our growing population without doing terrible damage to the environment? And maybe eating crickets and other insects is is part of the solution. You said that there's um, some of the data is a bit patchy for around the world uh, with population sizes of insects. Have we got any ideas of how many insects are still out there waiting to be discovered? Yeah, this is this is interesting. So we've named 1.1 million species of insect um, so far, roughly. And people have tried to, I mean, we find new ones every day. There are undoubtedly lots we haven't yet described, haven't given any kind of name to. 
but scientists struggle to estimate exactly how many there are. You know, how can, how can we know how many things there are that we haven't found? You know, it's, uh, but people have tried to estimate and, and most of the predictions suggest there's somewhere between one and 10 million more insects that we haven't yet named. Obviously, that's a huge kind of, you know, range. Probably somewhere in the middle is probably most realistic, four or five million more. But that's that. I mean, that means that we've only named about twenty percent, which is absolutely astonishing. That there are all these amazing creatures out there that we've yet to discover. I think that's kind of you know jaw dropping and and really inspiring. Is it likely that any of them could be in our back gardens, or are they more likely to be out in deserts or jungles where it's quite inaccessible for us? Yeah. Well, actually, the the. It's really easy to catch a species that no one has described before. Um, I mean, certainly there are there are many more in the tropics than you, you, you would be hard pushed to find one in your garden. Although it's not impossible, the difficulty is knowing it's a new species. So you know, if you swish a net around in a tropical forest, you'll you'll catch hundreds of insects, and probably many of them would be new to science. But there are, knowing which ones those are is an incredibly specialist job. It requires you basically have to take that little fly or whatever it was to the world expert on that particular family of flies who might be in a museum in in Europe or North America and and have to persuade them to spend several hours staring down a microscope at this little fly trying to work out is it one of the ones we've already named or is it something different so it's really specialist and there are so few experts able to do it that really limits how fast new species can be can be found but there could be what some in our you know there will undoubtedly be some in the uk but they're probably very similar to species we have described so you know it would be hard to distinguish them Uh, and uh, you know they're probably there Uh, so if you know if you want to start looking go for it ever the optimist i'll be out there with my net and in the pond so I, actually, interestingly, that there was a new species of butterfly discovered quite recently in in uh, uh, in Ireland, a, a, a wood white butterfly, which is very similar to the um, uh, to the wood white butterfly we knew was already here, but nobody had noticed it's and it presumably always been there. Um, but you know, butterflies are incredibly well studied. So the idea that there's been a there was a butterfly species right under our noses that no one even knew was there um, is is pretty cool. Yeah, it was three or four years ago now it was discovered. But uh, uh, yeah, you know, so so there is hope. Yeah, anyone could find a new species. You've got to just be eagle-eyed enough. Just earlier, we talked about honeybees and how important they are for pollination. Um, there is a fact you hear a lot that one third of our food is pollinated by honeybees. So is this true or is that maybe, you know, a bit optimistic? Uh, so roughly 75% of the crops we grow are at least partly dependent on insect pollination. So three quarters, which we're, uh, you know, and it's most of the fruit and veg. But actually those three quarters of our crops only provide about 30% of our food by weight because the 25% of crops that aren't insect pollinated happen to be that they're wind pollinated. They happen to be the world's biggest crops, things like wheat and rice and corn and so on, that the grasses that are all wind pollinated. So, so that's where the 30% figure comes from. But it's slightly misleading because many of those crops, things like um, apples, you will still get some apples without any pollinators. You just don't get as many and the apples don't tend to be as big. 
Um, so it's not that we would lose all of that 30% of our food. It would be uh, somewhat less than that. And, and probably the, uh, the most re- realistic estimate I've seen is actually that it's probably about 10% of our food by weight that it, that would be gone if we didn't have insect pollinators. But even so, you know, if you took away 10% of the world's food supply, that would obviously create enormous problems. So is there anything we can do in our day-to-day lives to help the insects if they are in decline, well, as they are in decline? One of the nice things here is is that we can all help. Um, You know, lots of these environmental kind of stories um, or issues, you know, you feel helpless and it's depressing and, uh, you know, you see the rainforest burning on the news and uh, all these kind of terrible things happening and you feel like, well, you know, what on earth can I do to help? But with insects, it's different. And I I think it's really nice that, uh, you know, because they do live all around us, they live in our gardens and local parks and in the road verges and, uh, you know, they're everywhere. And so even small things that we do, really do make a difference and and most insects thankfully haven't yet gone extinct and they can breed really fast so if you provide the right conditions for them their populations recover really quickly you know unlike pandas or tigers or whatever so so you know the obvious place to start if you're lucky enough to have a garden is that actually it's really easy to increase the number and and diversity of insects in your garden just by taking some really simple steps. I've written books about this. Um, the Garden Jungle uh, and Gardening for Bumblebees are both basically how to, to increase diversity in your garden. Or if, you, if people don't want to buy a book, then uh, my YouTube site's got lots of advice as well. But grow lots of bee-friendly, pollinator-friendly flowers. Grow some wildflowers. Don't mow your lawn too much. Flowering trees, if you've got a big enough garden, are great. Have a pond, which will support a whole range of insect life. Uh, a little bee hotel, they work quite well for some solitary bees. Don't use any pesticides. Uh, I'm actually running a campaign at the moment asking uh, people to sign. It's one of these government petitions calling for a ban on urban pesticide use, which is actually following what the French did a couple of years ago. Um, it seems crazy to me that we spray poisons in our gardens and that the council spray them in our streets and so on. But, you know, they're really simple things and many of them involve doing less rather than more, you know, less mowing of your lawn, less spraying of pesticides, not being so tidy, allowing a few weeds to flower. And and it really does make a difference. And that, I mean, there's an amazing example of how much uh, life you can attract to a garden from Leicester, which is not known as a biodiversity hotspot. I think it's fair to say, no offence to Leicester, but there was a lady there called Jenny Owen who lived lived in, in close to the middle of the city. She had a little garden of about an eighth of an acre, so you know nothing special. Um, but she she gardened for wildlife, and she spent thirty five years trying to identify and catalogue every species of animal and plant she could find in her little garden. And I, I mean, incredible effort, you know, half a lifetime. But the, it's extraordinary. Her grand total was 2,673 different species of animal and plant in her little garden, um, of which, if I remember correctly, 1,997 were insects, different species of insects. So, I mean, it sounds like the sorts of figures you'd expect from a rainforest, you know, thousands of species living in a, in a garden. So really simple things we, we do could really help. And there are 22 million private gardens in the UK. So just imagine if, you know, most of them were insect friendly, wildlife friendly, 
um, that would really make a, a, a difference. It would be kind of like a, you know, a national network of little patches of little miniature nature reserves. So I think that'd be fantastic. Yeah, it's getting away from that idea, isn't it, of your garden must be this sort of perfectly flat green lawn and you know, everything has to be perfectly manicured and just, you know, be a bit lazy, let it all go a bit wild and then all the insects will come back and it's great habitat for them. Yeah, and, and people are, it is happening, you know, it's, it's really exciting that, that lots of people are sort of making their gardens more wildlife friendly and, and perceptions are changing, it's slow and, you know, there are still people that want to have a kind of stripy, like a Wimbledon tennis court lawn in their garden, but there are a growing number of people that, that you know, prefer to have a shaggy lawn with lots of flowers in it and, you know, I hope that that will spread and spread and, and eventually, you know, that will become the norm, the new norm. Uh, and that, as I say, would really make a difference. So finally, just to wrap up on um, this then. So what are three things that our listeners really need to know about insects? Uh, so there's so much I could have gone for. I could have gone for some obscure kind of, uh, you know, facts, intriguing facts about insects or whatever. But I'll stick to the important stuff as far as I see it. So, I mean, firstly, we all depend upon insects, you know, love them or loathe them. Insects are vital to life on earth including us our lives would be much much harder without them so number two then is that i mean insects have they were among the first creatures on land they've been around for 400 million years much much longer than we have and for almost all that time they they were the dominant life on on earth you know if an alien had peered down at our planet any time in the last 400 million years they would have thought this was the planet of the insects and it's only very recently that that started to change and that we've taken over. And now these insects that have survived mass extinction events and everything else, they're now, they're in trouble and it's down to us. And then, so, I mean, number three, I think the most important thing is we can all help. You know, we can all get involved. We can do things, make your garden more insect friendly. Even flowers in a window box uh, will help. Vote with your pocket when you buy food, buy organic food, buy locally produced seasonal produce, eat less meat. That all reduces our impact on the environment and one way or another helps the insects. So the third thing is, is most important, you know, get involved, do something to help the insects. Thank you for listening to this episode of Instant Genius. That was Professor Dave Golson. If you want to know even more about the insect apocalypse, check out his book Silent Earth, which is available now. Or to hear even more from him, head over to the Instant Genius Extra podcast now. The latest issue of BBC Science Focus magazine is out now. Pick up a copy in store or visit sciencefocus.com. 